0: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with three, yes, three wonderful human beings. Anna Klosowska is a professor of French and an affiliate in women's gender and sexuality studies at Miami University in Ohio. Greta LaFleur is an associate professor of American Studies at Yale, and Masha Raskolnikov is an associate professor of English at a little school called Cornell University, welcome, welcome, welcome! It is so nice to talk to you. They've all joined to talk to me about their new edited volume, *Transhistorical Gender Plurality Before the Modern*, out 2021 with Cornell University friends or Cornell University Press. <laughs> <laughs> and so we begin. How's everybody today?
2: Awesome, thank you.
1: Let's just, let's
2: just hop right in and I want to know how this book came about. I think that uh, Masha should tell the story because we got together at the conversions conference that Kathleen Long, who is in the book, uh, organized that Cornell, co-organized and invited so many uh, interesting and, and wonderful people Including graduate students and uh, people who are soon to become big stars, but um, we were lucky to all meet there. And uh, and um, I think uh, if it was the movie version of our book, there would be a very very important scene in a, a dive bar named Chanticleer. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if enough academic
3: stories start with a dive bar, but they should. So
1: what is this conference you were at?
3: It was called Transforming Bodies, actually, Anichka, And it was organized by Kathleen Long, who is sort of the grand dame at Cornell of queer and disability studies, really. And uh, uh, it was a lovely conference. And we had met up for coffee and then decided that we'd go out for a drink after the day's events had concluded. And there's there's a bar uh, in Ithaca called the Chanticleer, which, of course, medievalists uh, is a resident uh, name. It's the name of a, a horny rooster in Chaucer uh, and in general sort of folk tradition. And so we, we went to this dive bar and we had just a lovely conversation. And one of the parts of that conversation that ended up growing into this book was us talking about how Desperately, there needed to be a collection um, that would bring together some of the exciting things that we saw happening in um, medieval trans studies and that we really wanted to encourage to have happen. So I feel like what we really said was somebody needs to do this. Somebody really needs to do this. We said that a few times and then we were like, huh, we could do this. And that is uh, revelatory and fun and um What I remember is that at the time, because this was before the pandemic, um, our fantasy was actually that um, this would give us an excuse to meet up regularly in different places as we edited the book. And I believe we had a vision that we would write the introduction um, somewhere on a beach sipping tall drinks of some kind. Instead, we ended up writing the introduction from our respective homes and doing basically all of our meetings on Zoom or really phone sometimes. During the pandemic, often with my children in the next room coming in to interrupt uh, whatever proceedings were happening, I kind of can't believe we pulled this off, that we really edited and wrote a book during the pandemic, because it was an extraordinarily difficult time for all three of us. Um, and, a time, participants, right? yeah. Yeah, and a really hard time for our participants. I mean... Not to speak out of turn about anyone else, anyone's health problems, but some people had long COVID dur- while they at least did edits for their articles in the book. And, you know, I and all that family
2: members, and it and, was really yeah. a tragic time. And I think that, you know, I was going into it thinking, you know, I need this not to do. <laughs> and then it became like this motor behind everything I was doing because of the two of you. Uh, I really admire your work and. Seeing you regularly was such a oh my goodness it was such a gift from the
3: universe during that time. You were some some weeks you were the only adults that I would see um, honestly, Um, and I would only see quote unquote on Zoom. So yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was an extraordinary isolating time, and working on this book um, was both really difficult and really helped save us. And
2: I wouldn't have done my portion if it was not for Masha, asking me at each meeting, so how is your piece?
3: And I was if it didn't really happen... excited. I will speak to Anna's piece because I'm still talking about it. Um, I was so excited about Anna's piece, which really uh, does some of this work that we most wanted of uh, recovering from the archive. Um sort of gender non-conforming lives that would otherwise be lost or at least go without enough sufficient comment. Right. And what I really loved about this paper, as it turned out, was not just that there was this archival record of a person who was roaming around Poland, charming everyone and marrying various people, both male and female, but also um, that Anna's argument ended up being, and I really, I do tell people about your argument all the time because it makes me happy, which is a of a dorky thing to say about an academic work, but I think the best thing. Um, your argument made me really happy because Ana ended up arguing that, of course, we only have this one gender nonconforming person, but they're at the center of a network of other people who love and desire and let this person get away with things for a long time before they ended up in this courtroom, probably ill effect. Um, and so the, that meant there was like a some kind of community of of allies and lovers and friends of this person, and that this kind of queered medieval Poland, a time and a place that does not really usually occur to us first as the locus of the queer. So this this piece gave me so much hope because as you probably know Poland uh, currently has some wildly conservative politics around um, queer things. And it's, um, you know, it's been my hope for the book that the book would be like, help us make the argument be one piece of many pieces of making the argument that like, wow, there really are gender nonconforming and trans effectively people in the historical past. We're not such people are not, some kind of novelty that comes from the corrupt West. Let let us say it is it, it. Such people have always been and have always belonged, and have always found support and love. So, this is a great point, right? This is one of the big questions. Like,
1: first of all, are trans? Do, did did were there trans and gender nonconforming people in history? Somehow, is a question we're asking, which is an interesting, like, kind of. How was that even a question? But we'll, it, it is, right? It's a question that needs to be asked and answered. So like that, just demonstrating the a resounding yes is the answer is one of the things you clearly wanted to do with this book. What else were you hoping it would do? Like, because it feels like this is a book that with, with really um, high aspirations and what else did you want to happen here?
2: I I would turn it to Greta, because Greta has this wonderful, um, you know, we we co-wrote the introduction, but I think Masha and Greta are mostly responsible for like the theoretical framing of it. And Greta wrote the post, uh, the the, the, uh, epilogue to the book. And uh, the insistence on sort of listening and learning from history um, and sort of letting the present and history sort of talk to each other um, and rediscover each other. I think that's that's the important part of the book. Another part is the many disciplines and many geographical locations as well as historical locations. So this book goes from Byzantium to Poland to um, the Americas and from art history to history to literature uh, to film in Korea. I, you know, the... the Intentionally, and also in terms of um, professional status of the authors at the time of writing. So we sort of, um, you know, I've, we are at a point of our careers where it's our responsibility to help um, young scholars. And so we leverage that to really put, um, you know, all our efforts into making sure that people have a career in trans and queer studies.
4: Yeah, if I could jump in for a sec. Um, sorry, I'm I'm still I still have a little bit of my pneumonia on, so I'm coughing a bit. Um, so hopefully I can keep it keep it out. Um yeah, I mean I think that I think that one of the things that we were trying to do with the book was what was sort of toggle between um, like a kind of knee-jerk historicism, which kind of um which is basically just a performance of it's a, it's a performance of historicism that is often sort of employed to mask a kind of conservatism in a number of different fields. Um, and then so toggle between that, and then and, and some sort of like uncritically celebratory, like trans people have always existed in exactly the way that we know them today, you know what I mean? And so one of the things that we were trying to do is think about, okay, well, what are some of the epistemological frameworks? What are some of the vocabularies for types of experience um, that people use to express, um, again, the embodied experience of um, living at odds with with the sort of conventional gendered structures of their time and place? I'm so sorry. Um, and so yeah, that's, um, that's, that's what we were kind of trying to do. And I think um, there are a lot of, like, functionally hegemonic ways that we think about um, transness today. For example, like, I don't know how many of you followed the, um, the, like, sort of, like, Twitter furore a few years ago about, like, people being trans enough. And, like, you know, for example, um, are you, are you not trans enough? If you are, if you only live as trans for, or only identify as trans for, Four or five years of a 60 or 70 year life right um and so one of the things that we were also kind of thinking about in the book is like people who lived as ter- well maybe not trans is not the word i want to use lived um uh in in a in a sort of gendered way that didn't sort of line up with the sort of social expectations for them so yeah it was just um it's just about trying to think about um think about uh, uh to try to push ourselves to think about ways of understanding Um, gender non-conforming experience that don't line up and and in some cases look like directly oppositional or contradictory or in tension with some of the ways that we think about trans experience today. So you're talking about
1: um, people who are living lives that don't match up with gendered, that are, you know, gendered, don't match the gendered expectations of their time. Okay. So that's, that is one level of thing uh, that we have to get into and explore, but that's the, the, that's only the beginning of the, of the issue, right? With like then trying to sort out what's going on.
2: So I, I think that uh, there's a lot going on in the book also on the different axes that intersect with the non-binary trans um, archives and literature. And uh, one of them is disability studies, uh, race. And I think there's a new conference coming up in May that um, a lot of the authors in the book are speaking or responding at um, that is very, very invested in working on that issue. Um, So we just wanted to start conversation. I don't think, um, you know, I think we wanted the conversation to be as capacious and as um, multi-form as possible. And as Greta says in her epilogue, open this to further discussion that was very important for us, to make a place, a safe place, a kind, congenial place, but a very, very smart place at the same time for people to start conversations from.
3: And I have been so happy, I must say, now that the book has been actually out for a little bit over a year, I've been so happy to find that people have been reading it, using it in their doctoral exams, in at least one case that I know of. Um, I had a a graduate application where the person wrote that they referred to the book as um, as solace. I believe the word was solace when they felt uh, negated by the world. And that made me I actually forwarded that mess that I I cut that one sentence out of the application and sent it to my friends who co-edited the book um, which was indiscreet I suppose but it was one sentence no identifying information and I was just so that was really what we wanted right or the, the joke that I've been making is that when you take the book and it's Final bound form, um, especially in hardcover, it's it's heavy enough to you know hit a turf with, but not that I'm advocating violence on the radio. But um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, it seemed like instead of violence that it offered a kind of kindness or soft place to land to people, and I thought that was really great. But also, you know, intellectual challenge. Um, I thought it was really interesting that we had some articles that were about sort of non-human. Um, or not necessarily like person-based forms of gender nonconformity. I'm thinking specifically now of like Emma Campbell's piece on the hyena and the gender hyena, which is a very interesting issue in medieval studies. And so that brings animal studies in dialogue with trans studies, which I thought was really cool to have to to put those pieces together. Um, But also that critique of humanism is really important. We are not only talking about the human.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to add, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, the, the volume reflects like the sort of tendencies or trends in conversations in trans studies more broadly, you know. I mean, I think that one of the things that if you look at, for example, the Trans Studies Reader 2, which was, you know, a big um, kind of like watershed volume um, after the publication of the Trans Studies Reader 1, where um, Susan Stryker and Arne Zura sort of come together and they're like, you know, What's changed since, you know, I think it was 2006. Um, and then what Trend Studies Reader 2 is 2013. And those are still kind of two of the like earliest books. I mean, there, there are many others, but there's, I mean, but they're all kind of early in that in their way. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, and you know, one of the things that they talk about in the introduction to the Trend Studies Reader 2 and what the volume in general kind of looks like is like taking frameworks and in a lot of ways this reminds me of like early queer theory too um even though even as trans studies really is sought to distinguish itself from a lot of the sort of prerogatives and intellectual tendencies and um sort of um epistemologies that involved uh, that um informed trans or in, inform queer studies um but like you know bringing like frameworks around yeah like the human um non-human um the post-human um the sort of uh relationship between um uh humans uh, human animals non-human animals and machines um and thinking about like you know lots of like larger scale biopolitical questions I mean all of this is I think in the ether and trend studies as a field and so it was nice to see people um bring it back to these earlier periods in part because you know I think I think there's even a tendency in, Early trans studies, or people working on these early questions, to assume like, or I mean, excuse me, I think there's even a tendency among um, trans studies scholars who work on like the 19th and 20th century, the modern period, to think like, oh, well, like this is the period where it's at, and like nothing happened before this moment, you know? And I think that our book was one of many efforts to try to interrupt that. And I really
3: worry about that tendency, actually, the more time I spend in this field, the more I worry about it, because um, to think that uh, transness uh, only begins in the 19th and 20th century is just completely to give over to the medical field and the the medicalization, diagnosis, and treatment, so-called, of gender nonconforming lives, which just... Oh no! I just lost connection to server and then regained it. Am I here? I just got these messages. Yes. So rather than imagining that trans lives only began when the medical, when 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 the world reached a certain level of medical knowledge, um, to think about trans lives earlier than that, I think is really important because it rejects that kind of paradigm of medical first. Or like you know medical transition first surgery surgery first which is not really what is in our book
1: uh, yeah and that idea that there that there this is a medical condition that needs to be fixed and can be understood and it relies on binaries and like an absolute change and medicalization and all of these things yeah it's really important but i want to I just want to make sure that, I know you know this because you did it, but I want to make sure everybody realizes that it's 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 hard. It's a very, this is very intellectually challenging on just like every level. Finding the cases, figuring out how to read them, reading through multiple levels of language, right? And I mean metaphorical and actual language. And 16th century, Polish isn't like modern Polish. I, this, this is massive undertaking and I love I love the idea that you probably had a little bit to drink when you decided that you should do it and <laughs> but here we go
2: that's right. So so as languages wise we have what? We have Greek ancient uh, and um, Ottoman empires or Turkic and we have Polish which by the way, you know, if you were Polish and we're told there are only three genders, that's not actually true. There's uh there's seven uh for some parts of speech and 11 for others so um you know in the process of of working on that piece i discovered there are languages there's a mm, large group of languages who have up to 25 genders and so um uh, we have korean we have japanese we have uh spanish um I, i think that the and french of course so i think that the you know, this is part of what we're trying to accomplish, I think, right? To make sure that everybody has uh, a way to enter it. And you were saying, oh no, now my postman has arrived. Come on, guys, down! Uh, So you were saying... some of that work is difficult and I was especially thinking of Masha Raskolnikov's piece on silence which is one of the most commonly taught medieval texts connected to trans studies with this very typical in Indo-European story uh, in a patriarchal society where only men inherit there is a child assigned at birth as female and raised as a man uh, to inherit and then um, at the very end of that story there is this very very suspicious reversal um, so uh, Masha was talking about the Prequel to Silence, the parents, and the way that fiction sort of organizes thought and and shows horizons that may not be um, very obvious in the historical record. Sort of the 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 the, the weight of imagination. I've always, as a literature scho- literary scholar, I've always been sort of attuned to the fact that most of our lives happen in our heads. Um, so, so that that part of the book, you know, is very interesting. But another issue that a lot of our authors have brought up is the ethics of doing that work historically. So um, um, here, I would think um, um, the, the the there's a number of pieces that really think through that ethics, and I think that's that's very valuable. <laughs>
1: Talk to me about the ethics of doing this work. What are
2: the questions that you're bringing to the table?
1: Greta?
4: Well, one of the ones um, that just came to mind immediately was just about the the choice of language, like language that is now um, really understood to be offensive. And yet that was in the 18th century, for example, language that... that people would sort of regularly use sometimes gender non-conforming people themselves would adopt to talk about their experience um and it makes sense right like we 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 we, we reached for what is available vocabulary wise um to sort of characterize and then convey you know the meaning of our sort of everyday everyday you know time on this earth um but it's but it's more complicated to sort of bring those things to 21st century audiences I think especially younger people who might have less familiarity with the sort of wide range of um, of uh, available linguistic terms. And then also um, with the fact that like with the with even the just the idea that it's itself that language changes over time and that the politics of it, the meanings of, you know, the same word doesn't mean the same thing in the same place, you know, in the same, you know, even in the same years sometimes. Um, And we know we mean we know this from just being people in the world. Right. Like if I say pop, in you know Ohio, people will know what pop, I think. I think people say pop in Ohio, right? They definitely say it in Ontario. Um, and but if I say pop here, people will be like, "What? Like what are you asking for?" Um, uh, same thing when I ordered. I think one time I tried to order a seltzer in England, um, and people were like, "Seltzer? Like you know what I mean? Like what is that?" Um, But um, so, yeah, so I mean, so that was that was one of the things that we were um, trying to think about. I think I mean, you you also end up with like basic basic archive ethics problems. Do you know what I mean? Like so if you think about, you know, the farther back you go, the best preserved preserved archives tend to be, um, you know, either the the archives of people who are wealthy enough to maintain them. Do you know what I mean? Or of people who are able to sort of um, cinch their hold on power for long amounts of time who are frequently invested in. Um, the eradication of like various forms of gender plurality and, um, and, you know, and like thinking about, um, especially with the, the, um, the global sort of framework that we were trying to bring to the volume, I think we wanted it to be more global than it was, but we, you know, but we still have like a decent amount of, um, Representation from different regions. Um, you know, I think about things like the transatlantic slave trade. I think about, um, I think about like the, you know, several hundred years of various global colonialisms that, like, made it so um, even vocabularies that were available to, for example, say like a nineteenth-century British doctor um, were being aimed at people who, at times, were not themselves actually like gendered, nonconforming identified or didn't really wouldn't have necessarily described themselves that way, right? But because like the, um, the like, because of racial hierarchies, because of the way that gender is always um, understood through a sort of, like, racial schematic, um, people get painted with a sort of gender nonconforming brush by, again, 19th century British uh, colonizers, um, when they may have had, when that may have actually had nothing to do with their experience, right? And we're only getting one side of that story. So those are just, just a, a handful of the kind of ethical issues.
3: There's also, and I'm thinking here of Scott Larson's really excellent uh, article that um, concludes, except for Greta's epilogue, um, the volume... Um, He has a beautiful essay called um, Late Open Examining Genders in Early America that also grapples with uh, the issues of um, the ethics, kind of the ethics of outing, which, you know, queer studies has also grappled with for quite a long time. But what it means to reveal or to think that one is revealing something about. A person who is long dead and who's not here to speak for ones for themselves, that I think is also really important. And I got to say, that's one of the reasons I work on fictions rather than on historical records because I would I, it, it does feel very um, the moment when silence the the thirteenth century um, trans or not gender nonconforming knight, is you know stripped naked before the court uh, is a horrible traumatic moment. I, uh, for me as a reader and certainly for my students. And so, but that's fiction. There's not a real person suffering there. Um, and you know, I, it is, it is very complex to talk about people's bodies, um, especially people who can't speak for themselves. So that I think Scott does a beautiful job grappling with that, um, stuff actually. Um, yeah. And then, I also think, and this is sort of this is sort of an issue um, that uh, that seems like an, a, an ethics issue as well. Um, I think also about assuming intentionality, um, and so that's rather than stripping people bare in their bodies and examining whatever their bodies hold as information, um, assuming or reaching for people's true intentions and, uh, what they were really trying to say, right. Which can be an act of bad faith, um, which can be, you know, really problematic, especially when we're sort of out there trying to find trans ancestors, or as the young people say, trans ancestors, um. Uh, we don't want to, in, you know, we we want to be ethical towards those long gone people as well, even though we need them so ba- so badly, right? We don't want to read into their lives too much. All that's being said, we have a whole book of examples of people being very ethical with their archives and finding all kinds of fabulous stuff. So it's not like this can't be done. It's that these are some of the complex obstacles that we grapple with.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50%
1: off. Of finding, of of understanding, and then as well of translating and, and telling the story, right? And that, I mean, there's always that tension back there too of figuring out what a person might've thought, how they were viewed, and what to make, what you can make of that anyway, and then how to translate that into a modern audience is, is its own problem, as you know, just as historians, it's a dear, ever, you know, and then this.
2: But sometimes like the act of writing and the act of, you know, being faced with readers uh, helps produce this um, uh, understanding. I think that was an important uh, part of the book for for many of the authors. And uh, and we enjoyed it too, right? <laughs>
1: okay, yeah. I get this. I love this when I'm talking to you. Is how much you clearly loved doing this book,
3: and a lot of people don't.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was really
3: it was really a joy. I miss it now. We used to meet on Fridays. What was it? Friday mornings at ten, more or less, every week for something like. I don't know, a year maybe, maybe more. And, you know, sometimes it would be canceled and sometimes we would be, you know, in some kind of extreme state. But most of the time we met and it was the thing I looked forward to. Um, and I got to say, spent my Thursdays preparing for um, every week. It it, it brought a, a, a lovely scholarly structure into my life that I now miss, really. <laughs> Even though it was damn hard work. And I got to say, all the essays went through two rounds of editing and, you know, the authors were very gracious in response to critique, uh, but we really worked with people. It was, we were very hands-on, I'm afraid. And that was also part of the pleasure was, was coming and working with such brilliant people and trying to make their work um, better and clearer still. Um, Yeah, it was really fun. I see that because that's one of the benefits. That's
1: one of the things that's really nice about this volume is it has, despite its incredibly broad scope and geographic and time and like subject matter methodology wise, it's a very broad. But it um, it has it, there's a con, a coherence that really separates this kind of uh, this you know that separates this from a lot of other edited volumes. It really works well together. I can tell you put the time in, you know. And one of the other things that sometimes is lacking. The, the most brilliant of scholars still work alone. And you, it's just not as good. You do better work when you get to talk to somebody about it and they read your work and, and talk you through it. And that, so the individual essays, I'm sure, benefited greatly from that as well.
3: I know I learned tremendously Greta edited the hell out of my essay, and I learned so much from being edited by Greta personally was I
4: mean, um, in such good shape though I mean I mean I've done a lot of editing work but um but I mean but I think edit like I think people need to be edited I need to be edited, you need to be edited everyone needs to be edited you know well, I, I
3: I want to credit you with with basically what became what I, I had written this article and I had presented it and I had, had chewed on it for, for a while before it got to the point where we were putting it into the book. But really, it was only when you read it, Greta, with your particular expertise and eyes that I really understood that the underlying question um, was uh, um, that the article is really about sort of refusing a psychological narrative of transness, that it's really about imagining a gender nonconforming person But subtracting the kind of um, coming out narrative aspects of it, the kind of suffering, desiring, choosing parts, which all get done for Ceylon's, more or less. Um, And since then, I've really been thinking, honestly, about this question of the will, which I also sort of deal with in other parts of my work. Like the question of we i think interestingly we also did this in early queer studies right the the idea that coming out was this massive significant act of choice but that meant we were doing a kind of symptomatic reading of everyone as as making choices and um and the only alternative was a kind of biologist um biologicalist interpretation that would mean that you know we were all born this way so Trying to find a ground that was neither born this way nor um, here I am thinking and suffering, and here is myself laid bare before you. That was really interesting. And I've really learned from Greta, who thinks about it this way. Um, I, I really learned that as a way of reading um, certain kinds of fictions. So, you know, thank you so much for that.
4: I mean my pleasure, I mean everyone of everyone we all edited each other, you know what I mean? I think we all learned I mean, I learned a lot from editing everyone's essays. I mean, I think we all I think we all read all the essays, I think, yeah,
3: yeah, we all read all the essays, but we also assigned, oh, I can't remember the numbers anymore, like four of them each, where we would work individually with the authors for a time and then we would switch. So we had we had a system. There was a system. There were numbers involved. I can't remember numbers. So
1: you um Marsha you talk about silence and um and you choose fiction. You mentioned um because it's less traumatic, but there's also um some, there's also something Uh, What does fiction give us? Let me just—I'm not going to try to answer your question. I'm the the question I'm asking you. What is why why fiction? What does that
3: give us? Well, fiction captures what people imagine or dream of. It allows a kind of mental experiment with what world the world can be. Um, What I. Fundamentally, although I don't think I put this anywhere in writing, believe about silence is that the way it's written is it's written that way, because if you're going to make a gender nonconforming character and have them be a hero, in a text in the 13th century in France, um, you kind of have to make it something that they get forced into, you know. You know, twist my arm, make me trans, kind of thing. You have to do that because that is how you get away with creating a character so radical, right? So, everything that happens in that fiction, um, I think, is done, po- I mean, possibly, this is very much like my sense of the thing, is done because making it offensive and weird in the ways that it's offensive and weird um, permits it to exist right? And it only exists in a single copy. It's not something that is, um, but it survives to our day. We get to find it and touch it. And it has, you know, illustrations that Anna has seen and I have not. Um, It's this extraordinary work and it survives partly because I think it makes certain kinds of narrative choices, but you can't really do that in life. You can't actually tailor your life in a way that makes it um, palatable to others. And so you can see the workings of choice, Dream, imagination, experimentation in fiction, where with life, you s- mostly encounter most of the folks that we encounter or gender nonconforming, we were encountering in court records where they were being you know punished for some aspect of their lives, often for their gender, yeah. right.
1: And catching only so, the transgressive moments as opposed to any of the the countless moments in between
3: yes. Yes, yeah. it's always in crisis when we get when we get people in the law records,
1: like a like your case, yeah, that where we in we find someone who has lived a very long and joyful life, um, and or interesting at least, and with moments of joy, and then we find them at this moment when things are kind of crashing down, right?
2: Right, um, and so you know, again, going back to this question of ethics, right? We have to be very careful about. Um, uh, sort of reading between the lines and also not uh, not foreclosing the argument. Uh, Greta always insists on that, that there's always something more to be seen, and I'm sure Masha, working with literature, does that too. Um, that there's always another reading. Um, I uh, for some reason, that, that case has never been translated into English, so this is a great thing to have it. And it speaks so well to this other case from 1384 London the, uh, that um, Gabi Wychowski uh, writes about in the volume and that everybody pretty much knows, Eleanor. And um, um, yeah, but. I think that what we find when we look at the archives, especially later archives of uh, people who are non-binary or trans, is that there are these huge archives, they they tend to amass documentation, they tend to have this archival desire to uh, make their experience uh, historically uh, legitimate, right? There's always there's always a precedent for them. They're they're um, also oftentimes uh, writing for children, which is also very interesting. I find. Um, there's there's something really important about being able to open this book which is by the way super cheap right we worked very hard to make it incredibly affordable um and 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 say look there's this heavy volume of all of these cases uh crossing all sorts of um you know disciplinary and geographic boundaries um And it reminds me of something I'm working on right now, which is Montaigne, and reading Montaigne's Journal de Voyage, and he goes from one village in which there was a number of uh, people who were assigned as uh, female and then lived as men, Um, and then next village, you know, it's the birthplace of Joan of Arc. And so, is there really, you know, a non-binary person in every village in France, or is it like Montaigne's queer tour of France?
3: That's so so wonderful,
2: Anna. I want to see that article.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Want to Montaigne's queer trip through France?
3: <laughs> I love that, and I want to read that. Um, can I also say that um, I am now engaged in a new editorial project, also that I think very much follows up from this one because I was so excited to work on this project that now I want to collaborate with people all the time. Um, and so, me and Bridget Weirty uh, who is a digital medieval studies person. Um, and we are working together on something that is right now called Always Hear, a Queer and Trans Global Medieval Sourcebook. We're hoping to make that even more global, uh, even with an even greater geographical reach for all the problems that's going to involve um, than uh, transhistorical. And we want to just basically put the stuff that we use for teaching uh, together with all the other stuff that everyone else has been hoarding that they use for teaching that we could put together to make a really solid internet and probably paper archive of what, the trans Middle Ages look like. We are saying that we're going to stop with the Middle Ages, that we're not going to go into the early modern because the explosion of texts that we get in the early modern, um, we're just going to leave that to other experts to get. But it's so wonderful because, you know, in a very basic way. I'm always standing over the hot copier of PDFing primary texts that don't exist in print and that you cannot find online and that are not, you know, that basically you have to make a copy in order to have a copy of, um, hundreds of pages in my life have been, I have, I have done in this way, you know, that feeling of dryness you get when you're standing over a photocopier. Um, I haven't found a better way to do it. Um, and you know, putting that stuff together so that it's available for everybody and so that we can share it, um, both for teaching and for joy, um, seems like a really fun thing to do. So I'm afraid that might take me the rest of my life. I'm, I'm a little worried about what a massive undertaking this could potentially be. I wanted to say that's what we're doing.
2: That's, hey, this
1: one's that's cool. exciting. Yeah. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Um, is, so we're closing in, kind of on the end of our ta- on, on the end of our talk here, and I had a whole bunch of questions, and I'm just not going to do, and that's fine because we're this was great, and I'm perfectly happy. Um, but one more thing I want to talk about, uh, yeah, the um, the hyena article, God, that was cool. Um, but so I was I was talking to one, <laughs> yeah, really good, and kind of an interesting way to think about methodologies. Um, and how you use like, which is so the books in these three sections interventions critical trans mythologies is the third and it involves that's where the hyenas come in the second framework representing early trans lives as Masha's piece and your, the first section archives revisiting law and medicine which has Anna's essay okay. um, and the, the, those are good demo we've talked about those a little so you can get a feel for what the book has for you but I um, so today I'm talking to one of my students about this. And, um, I, and I, I, I talked about honest person. and um my the student says, like, so, but wait, so were there trans people? <laughs> like, oh, kiddo. oh what am I gonna do with you right now? Um, so, and I thought maybe that would be a nice, you know, I just tossed that to you. Um, were there trans people? How, and how how well how do you answer that question? What do you mean? Like, of course, or what? It, like, I don't know. I have no idea what to do with that. I, I and I started talking for a very long time. That's what I did because I'm a professor.
3: But uh, <sighs> I would give that a resounding yes. Um, partly, I would give that a resounding yes because I I think that I think I can speak for all three of us when I say I. Don't think that any of us believe that in order to be trans, one needs some specific intervention or some specific action to be taken. And so, because we are not proponents of you're not trans enough, um, I think that, you know, you, it's not that these medieval people you know, couldn't get gender reassignment surgery and therefore they don't count, Um, they were doing what they were doing. So I will speak to like Eleanor Rickner, who is uh, in Gabby Bukowski's beautiful um, essay, which actually I think does a lot methodologically for trans studies, um, imagines uh, how beautiful Eleanor Rickner must be um, when she gets hired by a John in Cheapside. And then they get caught for, you know, selling sex and, uh, and buying sex and have to testify. And, uh, Eleanor is dead named throughout the testimony, but we know that she goes by Eleanor when we have an entire narrative of how she was taught how to pass as a woman by other women, other women, sex workers, and that there's some kind of community around her that had nurtured and taught her to do this, which how is this not trans Right? How is this not part of a lineage that um ex- you know, it works its way up to the present day? Um I just I would be slightly indignant to be asked this question honestly. <laughs> kind of indignant if it was my student, but kind of indignant.
1: this I think there was a lot there too, about language and was there, you know, and but the, the gender's destabilized. So Greta, what would you say?
4: Yeah, I was gonna say actually, like I think I would say something on the no spectrum. Do you know what I mean? But like, but like, but then, but then follow up with a couple of questions and say, look, it's not that there weren't gender nonconforming people. There's all there's always been gender nonconforming people, but like I think that like like what might we get out of saying no? There weren't trans people, but there were people who understood themselves at all as being as living and experiencing themselves, and the world is at odds with these like uh, gendered systems, um, around them, these conventional gendered systems around them. And what words do you think they used? How did they think about it? Like for me, I feel like that question is more of an opportunity. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's more of an opportunity. Cause it's not, um, I mean, I mean, I, I guess I'm not really teaching any classes where like students are like, were trans people like do trans people exist or not, which is just, you know, my, my luck. Like I, I teach, for example, trans studies every year. Um, but like, yeah, I guess I guess for me, um, I think there's a way that um, I, I really get nervous about a kind of um, like epistemological or onto, even ontological uh, like homogeneity in terms of like that like people are really really com- and I, and I, and I think I think that homogeneity is why there was like a controversy of like is so and so trans enough? Do you know what I mean? And I, like, there's a part of me that just wants to push back against this. In all ways, I and mean, because I also think that um, not letting not letting things go unsaid, and not letting like a particular version of trans or a particular version of gender nonconformingness um, be the sort of um, the sort of unspoken normative whatever version is like always like intellectually helpful. Do you know what I mean? Um, Cause I like, you know, and I, you know, I always, I even talk about this with my students sometimes in terms of what I call microgenerational differences. Although honestly, the older I get, I feel like now we're just actually at a generational difference, but like, you know, I'm like, I'll say to them, like, look, the way that I grew up thinking about what transness meant and what, like, what, like what that, like what that looked like, what, what it could be is like often in many cases really different from the way that you guys are experiencing it yourselves. And I like really respect way that you guys are thinking about it but you're gonna you're gonna run into ways that like your version of it is in tension with the way that i kind of experience it and that's just that's fine and what don't we want more of that you know so that's kind of my um my my kind of concern well i mean
1: and you finish the essay with against consensus which really makes that it which makes an argument for a lot of space for a lot of it's a really really beautiful just contemplation of um the i don't know of the the lack of consensus of continuing to ask questions and and really not accepting answers i I really enjoy your essay
2: Um. yeah and i think having all these all these anecdotes which are just so rich with detail is just so wonderful and illuminating and it illuminates both sides i think that um um, I, I really like what Greta said about each—you uh, know—each generation of high school graduates has their own way to do gender differently, right? And uh, and yet there is this 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 very profound feeling of home when you read the historical narratives. Um, and, uh, and 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 then you know you learn from them. You learn things that you maybe not noticed today. So, brilliant, wonderful. Hey, so
4: I know what Mash is doing next. I know what Anna's
1: doing next. Grata, what are you doing next?
4: So I'm trying to finish the second book project I'm working on, which is more of a history of sexuality project. Although it does have a um, chapter on turfs at the end, um, on turf politics at the end, which is something I've been working on a little bit. Like, I just, me and my friend Serena just did a special issue of TSQ on um, trans exclusionary feminisms and the Global right um or <laughs> excuse me an excellent but, um, issue yeah honestly i feel really happy with that issue um but then there's um but then i also am doing another editing project because i keep saying that i'm not going to and then i keep then i keep signing up for them um which is actually doing the i'm a series editor with blake gutt and um and uh emily skidmore for a blooms a bloomsbury uh cultural history of trans lives so it's like a six volume thing. So I'm not like, I know exactly it's a big project, but I'm not one of the specific volume editors. I'm just the series, I'm just the series editor with um with those two guys. So yeah, I think that'll be and that's under contract, but we're not gonna be submitting the whole thing for like two more years at least, I think.
1: Oh, all right. That's great. Lots going on and lots of really cool new things to work on. I'm so excited about that. Um it has been a while since I've read something that I just I don't know. It, I, so many times I found myself just kind of staring into the distance and having no answers. Um, and it was really, it was just, how much, how fun is that, right? To just read something and leave with more questions than answers in a very good way. It was really great.
3: That's why I went into medieval studies in the first place is because it kept doing that to me. Well, oh, perfect. That makes sense.
2: Yeah. But having the three different, you know, brains is, was such a such a joy too, you know? Um, for instance, the image on the cover, Greta uh, knows the artist, and, um, and just the way that other people have also chipped in. Um, you know, I remember having conversations about the title, and all of that is footnoted in the book. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and the book, once again, uh, listeners, the book is... Trans historical gender plurality before the modern It came out late in 2021 with Cornell university press. It is out and it is. Yeah. Am I not right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Okay. Um, and it is, uh, it is widely available and as Anna noted in a very good price. So buy this one, bring it home, share it with your friends and loved ones um, and all of your students, even if they will say, but then I don't understand gender nonconformity. Like, but- <laughs> I don't either. Like, let's let's see. I don't either. Tell me about it. I don't know either. Uh, it's, it's pretty great. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute delight. Um, and I am looking forward to the next time we get to do this. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much.
4: Thank you so thank much. You so much. Yay, so thank you, you for having you. us. It was oh, bye. plus.